late great Elgin Baylor's 1961-1962 season is one of the greatest in NBA history, and it's mainly because of the bizarre circumstances that he was forced to accommodate. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into that season. But before we do that, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Zach. I'm a former NBA writer turned podcaster slash content creator, and I'm going to be your host for this story. Um, and every so often, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see me glance over to the screen. That is because that is where my script is. Uh, don't ask me why I didn't print it out. I, I don't have an answer for you. Maybe that's something that'll happen later on. But yeah, right now I have this lovely Google Doc set at about 90%. So that way I can actually fit more of it on the screen. But yeah, if you see me, you know, break eye contact, just know that it's for a good reason. That's so I can remember my lines and actually what the fuck I'm talking about. So without further ado, let's get into it. Back in the 1960s, the NBA was particularly intriguing. It resembled nothing like the league that we see today. And that's mainly because the NBA was still in its infancy. At the beginning of that decade, it was not even 15 years old yet. So the high octane, the super thrilling gameplay that we're accustomed to today was certainly not the regular occurrence back then. What was interesting though, is in that short time from the league's inception to the 1960s, that little gap provided some incredible developmental time for some of the NBA's all-time great players. One season in particular that stands out is the 1961-1962 season, and not just for Elgin Baylor, but for multiple guys. There were a handful of dudes who went out that year and put out some of the greatest performances that the NBA has ever seen. In fact, some of those were record setting. And I'm going to begin with Wilt Chamberlain, who was probably the most notable. That season, Wilt Chamberlain went out and averaged a still standing record of 50.4 points. Wilt, as far as I'm concerned, mythical human being never existed and it's all just folklore at this point and we'll get into him a little bit as well later on but that was the year that he had statistically the greatest scoring season ever another guy who deserves some credit oscar robertson who had also a dazzling season in his own right he went out that season became the first player to average a triple double with 30.8 points 12 and a half rebounds and 11.4 assists recently um russell westbrook has since joined that club so congratulations to him but oscar robertson for the longest time was the only player in nba history to ever average a triple double for an entire season now you're probably looking at those two guys thinking to yourself wow you know pretty pretty fantastic seasons as you know as you should because both guys were undeniably fantastic but neither of them wound up bringing home the nba mvp award that honor belongs to bill russell bill russell led the Boston Celtics to a 60 and 20 record with averages of 23.6 rebounds and 18.9 points. This stat line, while incomprehensible in its own right, doesn't really stand out as much when compared to Wilt and the Big O, mainly because it's missing all of the glitzy and all of the glamorous type statistics. But make no mistake about it, Bill Russell was a bad dude back in the day and he obviously showed it by going on to win the nba mvp now one guy 
who is consistently glossed over while having these types of discussions, is Elgin Baylor. No matter what the conversation is, he's one of the greatest and most important players in NBA history. The fact that he's not talked about at the same rate as some other guys is a little bit disheartening. I don't know how many people up until recently like really knew the type of impact that Elgin Baylor had on the NBA. I mean, it was just, he really was one of the most monumental figures in the development of the league. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the NBA back in the day was, it was, <laughs> it was a tough watch. If you look at any of the historical footage, it's always these super small dudes wearing short shorts, super slender, very skinny, not very um, intimidating, not the, they would, in regards to today, their athletic ability was definitely below average. I'll say that for at least for the majority, the majority of the league. And one thing that always sticks out is when you catch these dudes like dribbling, it's always with the hunchback and then their shot forms are just like, I don't even really want to talk about it at the expense of getting sick and vomiting all over my microphone. It was just very hard to watch back then. I could only imagine what it was like trying to sit through full games because even the highlights are a little too, they're just like a little too much sometimes. The elite athletes that we see today, these explosive leapers, these fucking dynamic sprinters, all these crazy genetic freaks were not very prevalent back then. You know, there were a couple here and there, um, a little bit later on than the 60s, but guys like Julius Irving, Connie Hawkins, David Thompson, and of course, Michael Jordan. That group of guys really helped like bring the above the rim style into the mainstream. Like Julius Irving constantly regarded as one of the, you know, most exciting players of all time to watch. Same goes with Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan grew up idolizing David Thompson and, you know, actually mimicked a lot of his game after him. Nice little, nice little fun fact. But the one guy who really paved the way for them was Elgin Baylor. Baylor was not the biggest dude, stood at about 6'5", weighed around 225 pounds, but he had this ballerina-like grace about him and these pogo sticks for legs that looked like he was jumping off of a trampoline every time he, every time he went up for a shot. Bob Cousy, the legendary point guard for the Boston Celtics, said it, he said it the best. He really described El Elgin Baylor better than he could. Now, Cousy played 40 games against Baylor throughout his career described Baylor's game perfectly during the former Lakers star's 80th birthday celebration, saying, quote, Elgin was one of the first to go up for the jump shot, hang up there for about 15 seconds, have some lunch and a cup of coffee, and the defenders would all be back on the ground, and he'd finally decide to shoot that thing. Baylor, stylistically, was decades ahead of his peers. He came into the league as a 24-year-old from Seattle University, an institution that has produced just 10 NBA players, the most recent being Jawan Oldham, the, the 41st overall pick in the 1980 NBA draft. Baylor had tremendous body control and his hands were his hands were just massive and they allowed him to palm the ball like a grapefruit. After leaving his feet, he could move the basketball around to evade any defender that was longer than he was or maybe, you know, timed their jump as perfectly as he did. And, you know, he just made all of the necessary alterations to get around these dudes and the combination of all that the athleticism the inherent skill the physical gifts it culminated with Baylor mate really making a name for himself 
coming out of college. His first three seasons were all all-star worthy. Cumulatively, Baylor averaged 29.8 points, 17.1 rebounds, and 4.2 assists. Bonkers numbers. Scoring was outrageous. Rebounding was outrageous. You know, even playmaking from for a guy who wasn't ever really a playmaker. You know, just did whatever had to be done. He continued to improve the older he got, as you would expect, but he took a leap in the 1961-1962 season. It was almost superhuman to what he did. Now, this season, Baylor only wound up suiting up for 48 games. And no, there wasn't some tragedy that cut a season in half. There wasn't a drastic injury. He wasn't, you know, dealing with on and off, you know, tendonitis. It was way simpler than that. Elgin Baylor was just an army reservist and he got called to duty during that season. He wound up being stationed in Washington state and in order to play for the Lakers, needed a weekend pass that allowed him to travel back and forth. One would think that being in the military would, would be a detriment to Baylor, especially his conditioning, because not being at practice, not consistently playing, it's easy to see why you would think that he would just lose all of his wind and kind of just forget how to be an NBA player. Like not forget, obviously, but just, you know, always be a step behind his teammates. They're going out, they're playing 60, 70, 80 games a night, and they're constantly in it. They're getting their reps in, they're doing this, they're doing that. But it's also kind of like on the flip side, maybe not playing all the time saved his conditioning because it didn't put all of that extra mileage on his body. And every time he did go out, he could go out and give 110%. And I have a statistic to back this up. So over those 48 regular season games, Elgin Baylor averaged 2,129 points. For all of you mathematicians out there, that is an average of 44.4 minutes per night. Just incredible, incredible conditioning for a guy who, again, was only present for half the season. It gets better than that, though. His scoring numbers and his rebounding numbers were significantly more impressive than the minutes he played. Baylor finished that season with 38.3 points and 16.8 rebounds. Had he qualified for the leaderboard, of course, there being, I don't know if it was a minutes thing or, you know, an amount of games played thing. Regardless, Elgin Baylor did not wind up on any type of leaderboard, but the, if he were to qualify with that scoring average, it would be the fourth highest total, or not, not the fourth highest total, excuse me, the fourth highest average in NBA history behind only one guy, Wilt Chamberlain. If Elgin Baylor had qualified for the leaderboard, he would have statistically outscored every other player in the history of the NBA, not named Wilt Chamberlain. More points than Mike, more points than LeBron, Kobe, all of them. And although this, you know, is about Elgin Baylor, I think this is <laughs> this is slowly turning into a Wilt Chamberlain. I don't, I don't even know what you would call it. It's just like a Wilt Chamberlain fucking appreciation podcast or something. I don't I don't even really know where I was going with that. But as one could expect, when you have such thunderous numbers, I guess would be the appropriate the appropriate word to use. Every so often, you're going to have a couple of insane performances, one of which came on December 2nd against Philadelphia when Baylor finished with triple-double, a modest 20 points and even more modest 20 rebounds, at least by his standards, but 14 assists. Incredible. Incredible passing from this man on that particular evening, but 
he proved it was not a fluke. This must have been like when Michael Jordan had to play point guard. What was it back in like the 80s, 89, 80, 88, something like that, where he had to play point guard for 10 games and he just averaged triple doubles, something like that. 11 days later, Elgin Baylor goes out against St. Louis and finishes with 52 points, 25 rebounds, and 10 assists. Another incredible performance. Now, in between those two games, Baylor almost had another triple-double. In this one game, I, I forgot who it was against. I guess I just decided that was irrelevant information. Anyway, he finished with 63 points, 31 rebounds, and 7 assists. It's safe to say, I don't think I need anyone to fact check this. He's the only player in Basketball References database to have a 60 point, 30 rebound, and five assist game. Really, the only other player who I could think would put that up is none other than Wilt Chamberlain. And I don't know if Wilt ever, I don't think he ever, I don't know. I don't know. Again, this is going by Basketball References database, which isn't you know it doesn't have every statistic logged by every nba player in every game i don't remember when they got full stats i think it's only back to the 80s so we'll probably have like 37 of these games just knowing the kind of player that he was one would think i think i've started three paragraphs with one would think wow so even though beller was only with the lakers for half a season they they did not need his help very much clearly and if he were there for the entire season, they probably would have won 70, 70 of their 80 games or whatever. Assisting Baylor was none other than a 23-year-old point guard named Jerry West. You may have heard of him. He is the NBA's logo and has been for the longest time. In his second year out of West Virginia, Jerry West averaged 30.8 points while leading the Lakers to a 54 and 26 record, which put them atop of the, of the Western division, not Central, the Western division. And yes, I said division because there were only four teams out West back then. So there was really no need to call it a conference. It was pretty much split up just like West and East. And we'll get into this in a second, but the way they were split up is just super weird, right? So the Lakers go on, have this fantastic season with Elgin Baylor and Jerry West, finish above everybody, well, above the three or four other teams, however many there were. And overall, only the Celtics had one more games. And I mentioned that in the beginning when I talked about Bill Russell leading the Celtics to 60 wins. Anyway, once the postseason rolled around, Baylor, luckily enough with the Lakers, was available for every game. Now, I don't know if that's because, I don't know if he got like special privilege from the army or if his his tour had finished. Another little piece of, little piece of history I didn't bother to look up for whatever reason. Regardless, he was there and he was ready to just beat the shit out of anybody and everybody that stood in his way. So because of their incredible regular season, the Lakers went out and they earned a bye in the first round back when those existed. And they wound up and they wound up going up against the Detroit Pistons. Yes, folks, at one point in history, the Detroit Pistons, Detroit Pistons, Detroit, Michigan, were considered a Western division team. Very odd, I know. But one thing I noticed when I was, you know, just kind of rebrushing up on this story was that back in the day when there were only like eight, nine NBA teams, the West was pretty much every team not located in the Northeast. If I remember off the top of my head, the East was the Boston Celtics, the now defunct Syracuse Nationals, the New York Knicks. I think there was one more, Boston. 
New York, Syracuse, and uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Those were the four teams. I'm fairly certain those were the four teams that made up the East. There might have been a fifth one, but I, I can't remember. It's really not pertinent to the story because the only East team that the Lakers are going to go up against, spoiler alert, the Boston Celtics. Elgin Baylor suits up for the Lakers, and they go, and they go up against the Detroit Pistons, and man, the Lakers got very lucky because they went up against a team that was considerably worse than they were. Detroit finished this season with a record of 37-4, and and as you might expect, a team that is below average would have a litany of issues containing such a dynamic duo in Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. The two stars went on to combine for 68.1 points per night over the course of the six games, and there were only two evenings where Elgin Baylor failed to eclipse 35. This man was getting buckets every night. Just there was nothing the Pistons could do to slow him down. He had a series high 45 in game four. Ironically enough, a game that the Lakers lost 118 to 117. And Jerry West was right behind him with 41. Safe to say though, the reason that the Lakers lost was because they got almost no help from the rest of their team. Granted, they really didn't need that much, but a little bit more would have helped Rudy LaRusso, who I've never heard of before researching for this. I'm sure you have never heard of him either. He had 16 points and then I believe there was nobody else who really contributed anything worth mentioning. Detroit, they got a full team performance. They had six guys finish in double digits. And unfortunately, it was a valiant effort, but it doesn't matter because the Lakers would go on to beat the Pistons and advance to the NBA Finals. This finals, the 60, 62 finals, I guess it would be. Yeah, the 1962 finals would be the Lakers' first finals appearance since 1959. And they go on to face none other than the Boston Celtics. I've probably mentioned that like three times already, but I mean, the Celtics were pretty much in every finals from like 1955 to 1970 something. They were just, for whatever reason, no one in the East was able to stop Bill Russell and they just kept beating up on everybody they saw. So again, they go to the finals and I hate to say it because we're like supposed to be praising Elgin Baylor in this episode and just, you know, and talk about all the good things about him and especially the Lakers. Well, actually more so about him because this is about him. But unfortunately, it was a gigantic mismatch and the Lakers had a minimal shot of pulling out this victory. Now, on the shoulders of Baylor and Jerry West, the Lakers had the firepower to shoot out with the Celtics. But Celtics had Bill Russell, whose impact on defense would prove to be the difference. At least you would think. The most exceptional defender in the history of the NBA would dominate on that end, as we'd all expect. But if his offense was just a little better than people expected, the Celtics would pretty easily, pretty easily stomp on the Lakers. And it pains me to say that, but that was that was what would happen. And unfortunately, that is what did happen. Russell drastically improved on offense. He finished as Boston's leading scorer with about 23 points per night and converted on 54.3% of his shots. Mind you, this was a guy who shot 44% for his career. And back in the day, 44% was like when Steph was going out and shooting like 52, 53% from the field. Remember how I said times were different back then? Times were definitely different back then. It would not fly nowadays with the big man, not even just any big man, but your franchise centerpiece, the best player on your team, shooting 44% from the field. Another thing, Russell 
had this weird, just contagious unselfishness that not only he possessed, but rubbed off on everybody else on the team. He was second to Bob Cousy in assists and assists per game. Uh, Cousy had 65 total assists, Bill Russell at 40, and then Cousy averaged 9.3 times per game. Bill Russell was a little bit further back at 5.7, and Bill Russell managed to do all of this while playing more than 48 minutes per night. He finished officially with 48.3, more than a regulation basketball game. And I think there was, there was definitely one overtime game. I'm pretty sure that was the only one, but safe to say, Bill Russell was like, I gotta play every minute, I gotta play every minute. Looking at the box scores of these games, I feel like I can almost get into Red Auerbach's head and figure out what his game plan was. All right, gentlemen, here's what's going on. Started Red as his cigar burned and ash to the ground. Elgin and Jerry are really fucking good, so we're gonna force everyone else to beat us. Whenever they get the ball, annoy the hell out of them. Baylor went on to average 40.6 points per game, which led everybody. And Jerry West was not far behind him, 31.1. They shot 43 and 45.6% from the field, respectively. After them, unfortunately, there was not a consistent option for the Lakers. Both Rudy LaRusso and Frank Selvi, again, two guys who were uh, kind of just like fall under the radar, could not throw the ball into the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. That's always good. And it hurts a little bit more because they were supposed to be the third and fourth options to this superstar duo. Even with all of this adversity, though, the Lakers crawled out to a 3-2 lead heading into game six. And... As you might expect, Elgin Baylor carried most of the load. Again, he was consistently getting like 30, 35, 36 points every night and was just a terror on the glass. He was, he really was like Bill Russell. If Bill Russell converted all of his defensive powers into offensive powers, that's kind of, that's really the most apt comparison that I can think of. Now, his highlight of the series came in the fifth meeting, the Boston Garden. There hasn't been a performance like it since. Series was tied. Each Laker loss was a blowout. Each win was a nail biter. And Boston had the momentum heading into that home contest. They had just won the previous one in Hollywood, but that proved to be irrelevant to Elgin Baylor. It was a shootout, the final being 126 121 in favor of the Lakers. Elgin played every second of every quarter. The kind of stamina that we only saw back in the day. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that the science now says that, hey, maybe it's not ideal for your star players to play every minute of every game. The Lakers needed him out there playing all of those minutes if they wanted to win. That's how it was. So he goes out, takes the court in this game, and puts up a still standing finals record, 61 points. Took him 46 shots. He made 22 of them. He went to the free throw line 19 times where he converted on 17 of those attempts. He had 22 boards, which punctuated his all-time great showing. And all of this proved that Elgin Baylor was fighting for the Lakers' life, for their championship lives, I should say. After that performance, the Lakers needed just one more victory, and that proved to be the most elusive one. The series could have ended two days earlier when the Lakers were on their home court, but the Celtics would not let a championship slip through their grasp. As I mentioned, Celtics went to the finals, I think it was like 13 times during Bill Russell's tenure. He won 11 of them. Consistently, Bill Russell proved that he was on a mission to destroy his greatest rival. Baylor and West battled Russell in the various guards that Boston could deploy. And unfortunately, after another killer performance from both guys, the Lakers just fell short. They were out-talented. It's most comparable 
I feel like, to the 2017 finals when the Cleveland Cavaliers went up against Golden State. You know, when you got AD, Steph, Clay, Draymond, all those guys, there's really, there's really not much you can do. They only put 34 on the Celtics that evening, the evening that was game six. But fortunately, his team went on to lose the game 119 to 105 after just getting blown out in the third quarter. Bill Russell had a triple-double, 24 boards, 19 points, and 10 assists. And Sam Jones dropped in 35 while shooting 7 of 27 from the field. Series tied at three games apiece. Both teams hopped on their respective flights and flew back to Boston. I'm just going to come out and say it. If we could time travel and see any basketball game in the history of ever, I would want to stay as far away from this game as possible. This one game is arguably the worst in NBA history. And I'll get into why. Boston won this game, 110-107. It was an overtime nail-biter, slugfest, and there were so many fouls and so many missed shots. How many, you may ask? Well, together, the two teams combined for 70 personal fouls and 146 missed shots. 146 missed shots. Let's take a moment to comprehend this. There were 146 instances where these two teams could not put the ball in the basket. Let's just take a moment. Let's take a moment to comprehend that. Let's let it, let's let it marinate. Now, as bad as the contest was, Baylor was the high scorer. Again, just continued to flex his scoring prowess. He had 41 points, 22 rebounds, but unfortunately fouled out in 51 minutes. On the other side, Bill Russell came up clutch, dropped in 30 points and pulled down 40 rebounds. Holy shit. I don't remember. I don't remember reading that. I don't remember reading that when I brushed up on it. Elgin Baylor had done everything to keep the Lakers competitive in this series, and they managed to extend it to seven games, which is, you know, a moral victory. But unfortunately, moral victories don't come with any hardware. You can't store it, store it in a trophy case or anything like that. Subsequently, after that season, it was pretty much the decline of Elgin Baylor's career. From 1963 to 1970, his scoring fell to a respectable 25.8 points, but toward the end of his campaign, he, he just fell off more and more, and it really just helped bring that number down. And especially compared to what he was doing at the beginning of the season, it's almost like he was an entirely different player, unfortunately. There were also numerous injuries that Elgin Baylor had to deal with, knees, Achilles, lower back. This zapped all of his athleticism. It just really, it really expedited the ending of his career. He wasn't scoring as efficiently or as voluminously. He wasn't attacking the glass with that much fervor. He just really fell down a whole bunch of pegs. And unfortunately, Elgin Baylor was forced to retire in 1972 after playing just nine games. He called it a career that he couldn't do it. Although he left the organization midseason, the Lakers, who went on to win the, the title that year, presented him with the championship ring. And that was something that I didn't know until I started uh, researching for this, because it doesn't say it anywhere. It doesn't say it on his basketball reference page. It's never really talked about how he won this championship ring and how he had it for a while up until selling it uh, a couple years ago. I don't remember when exactly, but every time we talk about some of the best players who have never won a title, it's Elgin Baylor. He's at the top 
I'd say he's at the top. It's like him, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, guys like that. But, you know, technically, he may not have won a title, but he's got championship ring. So there's that. So I, so I guess just like put a bow on all of this. The 1961-1962 season was Baylor's best, and it still remains one of the most criminally underrated seasons in NBA history. He posted an incomprehensible stat line while playing an above the rim style that we've come to know and love. The difference, however, is the circumstance surrounding his playing time. I don't know how many NBA players or athletes in general could devote half of their season to the armed forces and the other half to the NBA team and still manage to be an all-NBA first-team caliber player. Knowing all that, it's safe to say that Elgin Baylor is in a class of his own. Thank you guys so much for watching, so much for listening. If you're on the YouTube as people like to call it, there is a like button. If you can go ahead and hit that for me, that would be, that would mean the world to me. If you're listening to this in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, go ahead, leave me a rating or a review. And all the other ways to support the show are linked down in the description. I thank you guys so much for hanging out with me today, and I'll see you in the next one.